it's, it's funny, you can, September I think is the hardest time, um, especially being on the preaching rotor because you get so used to kind of sitting back, enjoying the topicals that come and hearing other people do that and you kind of miss that ability to kind of sit as a, I'm not say a spectator, but someone who is, um, it's always good to have a meal that you haven't had to cook and that you enjoy, isn't it? And so um, September is one of those times you come back and you have to, you're the chef again. You have to uh, mix it up, but ultimately we know this the Lord, isn't it? Who adds the flavor, makes it nice. So we're thankful for that. Um, let me kind of take a little bit of time and show you what we're doing. Like, you know, like Pastor E said, we're going to do something slightly different. You know, we don't normally do themes. We normally go through the books of the Bible. We are going to be looking at the text, you know. So this is not like us just thinking, you know, here's what we think the church is and da-da-da-da-da, you know, and let's not bother with our Bibles. No, we're going to have key texts. But um, like I said, it's going to be slightly different. We're not necessarily going to be going bow and kind of exegeting the text, but we're going to try and, um, as it were, deal with the implications of the text as it comes. Um, let me introduce um, the key resource we're using for this, and just for your benefit, really, is and um, we, there's a special affinity to this book. Uh, it's called The Message of the Church. Um, it's from the Bible Speaks Today series. It's the, the um, I guess it's a topical one, not the obviously the, 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 the books there, and, and in particular because of the author. Chris Green um, was many of us, Pastor Robs, um, Pastor E's, um, myself as teacher and so a lot of the stuff I learned I learned in hopefully richer detail than I'm going to deliver here but at the end of the day we're going to kind of boil it down but I just want to say that if you do want to grab this and kind of look at it and say well let me try and go for it and it has a study guide at the back as well which is helping us to put these these sermons together in order to deliver it to you but it will be helpful if you haven't had um, and again, as we'll, we'll go for it, if you haven't had the time to study ecclesiology, um, do it, please. The Bible Speaks Today series, and it's called The Message of the Church by Chris Green. So do look it up and um, go through it, and you'll find that as you go through it, you'll um, gain the benefit of what we are going through today. So before I pray and read our text, let me just kind of take a slow run up. And I want to start with a C.S. Lewis quote, um, because it's not a bad place to start, right? Old Lewis on the church. It takes all sorts to make a world or a church. This may be even truer of a church. If grace perfects nature it must expand all natures into the full richness of the diversity which God intended when he made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. It's quite profound, isn't it? The whole idea that the diversity that we so often don't appreciate within the community. Again, you know, the, the, the types of, you know, mono-homogenous kind of groups we tend to look for where everyone is like ourselves is not really the meaning of the church. Whether that's by ethnic standards, whether it's by class standards, whether it's by gifts and talents, you know, 
we are really actually supposed, and we see this from the text as well, don't we? Especially through Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, this whole idea of diversity coming and being richer. And hopefully it will come out today as we, we kind of introduce this topic. So what's, why do a series like this? Well, generally because of poor ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just basically the study of the church, the idea of the church. Why do we gather? Why do we do these things? And, you know, and the, the reality is, is that like some other t- subjects, i.e. dating, we tend to pretty much make it up as we go along. When we're happy in our local church, we tend not to think about ecclesiology because the meaning of why we go there is there. I enjoy the company. I enjoy the songs. I enjoy the sermons. I enjoy the people I meet. I enjoy my tea and coffee afterwards. I enjoy just being there in the, in the group. It's fun. But it's strange that when those expectations drop, and our church experience is not what we like, and all of a sudden we are not happy where we are, all of a sudden we start to reinterpret what church is and what we really are looking for. But really, we're just making it up. Because we haven't really thought about it, and again, more times you're making yourself the center of that decision. If it is Christ's church, then all those decisions should be Christ-related. So why talk about this now? Well, Pastor E alluded to it, didn't he? Things have changed. You know, it's so tempting to say the post-COVID world, because obviously we're not post-COVID, are we? But in that sense, we've re-emerged in a new type of way of doing life. You know, much the way that we kind of re-emerged in a new way of life um, from 9-11. The way we traveled all changed. So COVID and lockdowns have changed the world. And to some extent has changed and re-altered or maybe re reconsidered the way that we do church. So one of the takeaways from this period, which in fact has always been true, is that human interactions come at a cost. There is always a cost to do it. There are implications for all areas of society. So this is not just affecting the church. So a lot of the ways that we think about, one of the things that we've renegotiated now is how we work. Actually, I prefer to work from home now. How we travel. You know, the rise of the e-scooter, the rise of the e-bike. I always particularly take a particular offense at the e-bikes because I'm a cyclist myself. And when someone is effortlessly going past me up the hills, I'm like, you can't do it for real. But we've seen all these things change, isn't it? All of a sudden, I'm not getting on public transport anymore. That has changed. And now, even how we consider our own hygiene and even other people's hygiene as well, right? That is a big issue now. 
I noticed he didn't use the gel. <laughs> and he's shaking his hand. I'll, uh, I'll do the bump. I'll do the, I won't even do the fist pump. I'll do the elbow just in case. So things have changed. Even though it may be small cost, obviously we realize that um, COVID wasn't the black death in the scale of plagues. I believe we are emerging into a world where we can better appreciate that fellowship comes at a price. Other parts of the church community, especially in areas where there is persecution, so think of places, communist areas, where, you know, not this, you can't say Christianity, but where religion is suppressed. Um, also think of Islamic countries. Those people have already known this. Meeting together comes at a cost. So the issue that we're faced now is, is the cost worth it? Is it worth risking catching a disease? Is it worth the price of a bus fare? Is it worth my time? No doubt I can be doing any other kind of thing on a Sunday morning. Why give up these two hours, three hours, four hours, for those who are setting up? Is it worth it? Or even better, again, thinking of the persecuted church, is it worth dying for? If church is just a place where I meet other like-minded people and comes as an added extra to an already complete Christian life, then the answer might well be no. It's not worth it. All this thinking of cost, we must not take it as as a negative. It's not to bring the tone down, but it's to be real and to kind of start from a place where we can start to build up from. Because when we start to think about it in that sense, when we think about the fact that fellowship and being a part of a church community comes as a cost, then we suddenly realize that actually the things that cost me tend to be more cherished, tend to be more important. And having that opportunity, especially, quote-unquote, in the post-COVID world, is a good thing. Actually, it is worth me meeting with other like-minded people. It is worth it because it's important. And to be without it will leave me poorer to say the least. So one of the other things I want to get out in my kind of introduction today is that we must get past the place where we treat the church as a consumer. This is important. The best way I believe we can do this is to see the local church as a place in which I serve and not merely as a place in which I am served. What does this mean? It means that I do not judge a church by how it serves my needs. 
but really by the capacity in which I can serve it. Imagine doing such a good job ministering to the local church that your sole purpose for moving on, as it were, is to do, some, is to do the same elsewhere. Now think about that. I have done such a good job in my local church, and I love being there, but I feel the burden to do this somewhere else, where they don't have that. Maybe you've, you've brought a thriving children's ministry to birth, and now you've got plenty of people working it and servicing it, and, you, and you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I would love to go to a church where they don't have children's ministry and do that there, and let that flourish. Or maybe for your music ministry. Whatever you do, you name it. Imagine that. My capacity to serve here is tempting me to move on. We seldom hear people moving on for this type of reason because other than for reasons like distance and whatnot and I've moved to a new place, is because their ecclesiology is wrong. They don't think of the church the right way. They, think, they should think about it because ultimately their sole purpose for moving on is I need to be at a place where I can get served better. I think one of the best ways to stop treating the church as a consumer is to start acting like a merchant who wants to invest his time treasure and talent into the church in response to the finished work of Christ on the cross. In other words, because of what he has done for me, I have something to offer that I need to get to other people. Like the man with a good business idea, I need this to get out there. I need to display the works of Christ and and. Get it to people, as many people as I can. If this reminds us of the parable of the talents, then maybe the penny is starting to drop. The church, however, has become a hard place to relate to the current generation. As it has grown accustomed, and I, I include myself in this, to being individually determined. Obviously, we speak about being in an individualistic society as opposed to a collectively determined one. This means that for the most part, we carry around the idea that I determine who I am and what I, and what I am in contrast to the fact that the community has a say in who I am. Centuries ago, even in the UK, even before it was the UK, we were community-based. The community determined who we were. Even our surnames were determined by the role we had within the community. But that obviously has changed now. The correct way, I think, 
about thinking about these two ideas of, well, am I supposed to be an individual or am I supposed to be part of the community? Where do I ultimately grab my identity from? I don't think it is an either-or type of question. Well, I'm either self-determined or I'm determined by the community. No, I don't want to play those two things off against each other because I believe it's a both-and. I am deciding to be a Christian, and I want the community to come around me and to see and verify that Christ is indeed working in me. Rather than me just saying, oh, I, I believe I'm a Christian, I've, I, I don't really know. But our com the community can verify the work in which Christ is doing in us. And so we hold on to both. So as an individual, I need to come to the knowledge that Christ has come to save me. But I also need that church community to help me work out that salvation in discipleship. Let me read a short excerpt. Not our main text today, but Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see what Paul is saying there? In my presence, in other words, what you do in my presence is important. What you do amongst in the community is important, but also, even when I'm not present, I'm still the church. I'm still a part of that church. I still have something to do. In other words, because Paul lived in a collective society where everybody's, well, what, it's what I do in the, in the community that matters, he also says, actually, when you're even by yourself, you need to be the church. Maybe we need to understand this maybe in the reverse. In my presence, you are to be the church. We are to relate to one another closely because of the gospel. But let's come to our main text today, and it's from Matthew 25, 31 to 46. So please turn there if you can. So yeah, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Reading from the ESV. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to, all, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Let's take some time to pray. Father, this is your word, and we receive it as such. Guide us, dear Lord God, in discovering who we are in you, Lord God, and who we are together. Give us, dear Lord God, your grace to receive, dear Lord Father, the teaching of your text today. And as we look deep into what it means to be a church, as a, to be a, a community, dear Lord God, of the saved, then guide us, Lord God. I pray for myself even now. Help us, Lord God, as we you know, dive into this, dear Lord God, and endeavor to be faithful in teaching that which is true. Lord, give us, dear Lord Father, wisdom to respond to this. And even the power to change, dear Lord, if needs be, as we come in contact with your word and with your truth. Help us, Lord God, that as we think about what it means to be discipled, to allow ourselves to be conformed to the obedience of, of your word, your truth, so that we can fully appreciate the salvation, the great salvation in which you've given us through your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to have that comfort of the Holy Spirit as we try to live this life faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take a little time maybe just to kind of expound what we just read there in 25. One of the things that people might jump on and say, well, look, the gathering of the church really happens at the end of the age, doesn't it? You know, it's, you know, it's like this whole idea of, well... You know, I can be saved individually, but really it's ultimately what, when God calls my name, will he know my name and all the rest of it, and ultimately I can be saved that way. But the parable doesn't allow us to think about the kingdom of heaven purely as about what happens at the end of the world, even though obviously it's talking about the end of the world. Because he has that section in there about the whole idea of, you were fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me, you visited me, you helped me along the way. And the saved are confused because they're saying, Lord, I never did that directly to you. I helped other people, other believers, and even sometimes non-believers. I, I done all those things. but never for you. And what Jesus says is, actually, when you did it in community, you did it for me. 
The little ones is not children. I know that one of the great fallacies of teaching this text is, oh, it's what happens to children. No, the little ones are part of the body of Christ. The little ones are Christ's children, Christ's progeny. And when you think about the way that parable comes across, it's like the only way you can know these things about how do I know when someone's hungry? How do I know when someone needs a visit? How do I know when someone needs clothing? Is because we are in community and understand those things and are able to do it. If I'm doing church at home, I cannot know that about another believer. And that's the danger of not understanding this text. Christ is implying that the sheep and the goats are identified by virtue of how they treat the church community. And to not be involved with it is to actually treat it with disdain. His body. And Christ takes that personally. Oh, I won't bother fellowship. I can't be bothered with these church people, all hypocrites. How we treat the body matters. Even when it hurts us. Because it is his body. In contrast, the ones who didn't know how to clothe and to feed and to visit the others were identifying themselves. Hopefully we're starting to get the implications of the text. That if I'm not in community, am I also in, in, dis in disobedience? Am I mistaking my identity as a sheep when really I'm a goat? One of the interesting things about goats, isn't it? They'll eat anything. <laughs> and one of the things you hear about people, and I go, I was one of them, who does the, you know, I'm doing church at home, is you, you buy up anything. Any little idea of, well, why I don't have to be in community. You eat it up. <laughs> goats will eat rope. They will eat, try chew on stone. But sheep just eat grass. <laughs> they know which they know what's good for them. So let's go for a couple of questions and expound and pick this up. So why does it matter that we are gathered as opposed to being scattered by God? We're going to do a biblical theology of, of the church, and obviously that comes next week, and we're going to go all the way through to um, from eternity to eternity, and you'll see a little bit more of this. But let me kind of jump us through some of the highlights. So in particular, we see in Genesis 11, we see the account of the Tower of Babel, right? And it was built by the rebellious humanity. In other words, it was this idea that we're going to 
we're going to establish our community on our own terms, not on God's terms, on our own terms. And it resulted in being scattered over the earth. So God wasn't happy with the whole idea of people wanting to do community on their own terms. And so they were scattered. And that is obviously a negative thing that we're supposed to look at. That, that scattering was obviously positive in the sense that people now had to go out and, and, and create different communities. But obviously the negative was that God didn't want people to determine, oh, I'll do it my own way. I.e., we don't just do church the way I want to do it. But how God wants us to do it. So throughout the history of the Bible, we, are, we see this repeated pattern of God separating the people who worship him, who worship him by separating him from those who don't. And that's a pattern that we see there, and that's why we see that parable is quite powerful, is that there is always this idea of separation. Uh, the whole idea of being sanctified, as it were, is the word separation in Hebrew, to be set apart. And so to be God's people is to be set apart. So no wonder we see this pattern in there. So, for example, we see this in Noah, in the ark, in Genesis 6, right through to, what's it, 9. That the ark represented the place where people came to be saved, quite literally. They were the community of the saved came into the ark. We see this again with Abraham a little bit later in Genesis 12, being separated from his family's, his father's house of come away from me and I will make you a great people. So we see there a separation, come away from your family. We see this again in Genesis 19, where Lot is now taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah in order to be not partake in the suffering and the, the judgment that will come upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's another separation of being called out and gathered to a place of safety. We see this again in Genesis 47 where Jacob's um, family is gathered into the safety of Egypt, but not amongst the Egyptian, but into the land of Goshen, where they're separated even from the Egyptians. But again, on the whole idea that within, if they stayed in Canaan, they would die of hunger. So God then gathered them and brought them into a place of safety, and they became God's community there. And then as we move over into Exodus, but we won't go beyond this, we see the same thing happening where God now makes a distinction as he judges Egypt, but that the judgment that comes on Egypt doesn't come on the Israelites in the land of Goshen. And we see the pinnacle of this in Passover. The Passover now becomes that the church community, the saved community, the covenant community actually distinguish them themselves and become their own community by doing the things that God wants them to do, i.e. put the blood of the lamb upon the lintels of our door so that we may be saved. This is the reason why Peter says this in 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God knows how to do this. And Peter quotes some of these actual events as he talks about this. That the church needs to stay together by virtue of obedience to God. How am I going to be saved? We'll come together in the community and you will discover how. 
God is going to be working his plan of salvation in history. Those who refuse to be where he has placed his people will suffer the consequences of being judged as an unbeliever. So when you don't do that, when I don't follow the, when I go, I don't have to follow the Passover like those um, anti, you know, the pre-Diluvian world. Oh, I'll just worship God however I want to do and build a tower and who cares what God thinks. You suffer the consequences. How are we gathered now, though? Well, the church universally represents the place in which we are selected to be, we are selected to be saved. So that, it's, a, it's more of a concept and a place. It's not an ark, and we'll discuss a little bit more. But here it's important to note that being a member of a local church or a particular denomination does not make you saved. No more than saying the sinner's prayer or getting baptized makes you saved. The church in this sense does not function like an ark where our salvation is assured by merely being on it or in it. The church, therefore, is not a safe or a sacred space. I'm talking about buildings now in which we stand in order to be saved. One of the significant features of the Reformation, that which happened in, you know, particularly in Germany and then obviously within Switzerland and then throughout the whole of Europe eventually, or most of Europe, should we say, is moving away from the idea that if a priest or a pope absolved you from sins, then you can be assured of your salvation. The obedience of those who believe is the only sure way to establish who forms part of God's true church. So reading from 2 Timothy 2, 19 to 21 to kind of highlight this idea. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some of honorable, for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So you see that picture there that the Lord knows those who are his. So there's a, there's a connection where God individually connects to those who are saved. But within the context of a temple, and he uses the temple picture here, there, there are sacred things and there are unsacred things which are not important to God. And so the whole idea of, well, I'm in the church community is not the same as being a vessel of honor. So that's one of the notions that we need to get away, that merely being gathered with the church community is enough. This is not just merely about church attendance. It's about obedience and about how church may play a role in my obedience and my maturity as being a believer. So that's why we gather in obedience to God. 
So what does the word church mean, and how might we misunderstand it? Well, the church refers to gathering, the gathering of our people. It doesn't directly refer to the building where Christians gather, even though this is, for hopefully for most of us we understand this, but it is best understood as the people themselves. And this is a concept that's rife, especially throughout Paul's epistles. This whole idea that we are the bricks of the new temple, that we are the actual temple of God. And so, to some extent, it does refer to a building, but a building that is people as opposed to bricks or stone or mortar. That we have become the new temple of God and God worships in us and through us. So we worship him as part of that new temple. The Greek word for church also relates to the word that means the Lord's. So there's also a sense of ownership of it as well. That we are not just merely an assembly of people, but we are the assembly of people that belong to the Lord, exactly. So that's when we say we're in the church. Well, we're a gathering. You know, a gathering for what? Well, gathering for um, Hornby Railroad train sets. For a football club? No, because we're the Lord's. That's what it means. We are the Lord's. This is helpful because it reminds us that the church is not a free, is not a free independent people meeting together for its own purpose. As the parable in Matthew 25 highlights, we gather as belonging to the Lord. Who is responsible for the church? The short and simple answer is all of us. All of us are responsible for it because we're all part of the community. Well, we, we obviously identify Christ as the overall authority, but when we think about the church together and, well, when churches fail and all the rest of it, it's very easy to then look at leadership and say, well, the failures of leadership have done that and all the rest of it, but no. Well, yes and no. Leadership can fail, but then where were you? What were you doing? What will you do now that leadership has failed? You know, I... <laughs> I didn't have this illustration kind of highlighted, but it's almost like the, the concept of, um, think of it with a concept of a, of a platoon. Military one is helpful. The lieutenant is going out on the mission, he's leading, you've got 20 odd men behind him, all the rest of it. He gets taken out, poor decision maybe, let's go and advance on the enemy, he gets taken out. Who's in charge now? Does the platoon go into disarray and go, oh, let's all go back to base because we don't have a leader? No. Who's the next one up? Where's the next rank? And though we don't do ranks as such, it's the whole idea of, well, the leader's taken up. We've still got a mission to do. Let's now fill in and now get the mission done. So who's responsible for the platoon? 
was a lieutenant. The lieutenant's dead. So who's responsible now? All of us. To the last man or woman. To the last person. So what are the shortcuts that people look to to improve the quality of their church experience? Well, looking at the church as sometimes we can struggle with, and obviously these are questions we always have to ask ourselves about, are we doing church the best way we can right now? Some churches have resisted change and therefore spare themselves the pain of doing new things in order to better connect to their congregation. For example, not using new songs or different instruments. Using old traditional translations of the Bible. That's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I remember um, Pete. Pete's a hardcore King James guy. I remember in Bible study at, at Mark's, he was reading a particular excerpt, and <laughs> it almost felt like his teeth were going to fly out with all the teeth in the top. <laughs> I, I, said, I said, Pete, you've really got to move to a new translation. <laughs> you had to be there to see it. It was like... <laughs> um, you know... <laughs> So all these ultra, sometimes conservative values have this stifling effect on the church connected to new members, you know, you know, who feel no connection to these older traditions, you know. It's not that these, these are bad in and of themselves or the King James Bible is bad. It's just that it's not connecting to them. And the whole idea is that we, want, as a church, want to be understood. We want to be able to have people connect to the gospel. It is in these traditions we must be careful that we do not equate them to the gospel itself. But we'll do a bit more on this later. On the other hand, there is a danger of the very, on the other hand, of the very culturally sensitive, seeker-friendly churches that spend more time exegeting the needs of the society, exegeting meaning looking and examining what, in what do they want, what what are they about, how do I, you know, meet their needs then they do exegete in their Bible in order to connect the society to the finished work of Christ. You know, there's a place, and this is something that we, we, I, we definitely did, um, especially with Chris Green back in the day, is how do we exegete a community so that we can better beat that? That's a, a good thing. And so it's like you said, our, our old traditions, these are not bad things in of, in of itself. And even looking out and saying, well, you know, we're living in a community, we, we, we do food bank, and we've got a school to help um, those who are, like you said, on the fringes of, of, of there. And we might do other things. We've done, obviously, um, baby groups as well to meet the needs of the community so that people can connect and have something in order to rely upon. But we also do that at the same, at, not at the expense of saying, well, as long as their needs have been met and they feel happy, we're all right. But as we exegete the Bible and say, look, how can we better connect the gospel to these communities? You know, like do a, you know, on a, on, a, on a Monday when we do food bank, like, you know, how do we bring like, you know, a John 6 kind of statement into there that seek not the food that will perish. 
Jesus fed the 5,000. Not, he's not saying, oh, I really wish I never did that. But he's like saying, there's more. There is more. Just look for food. Look for more. Give your life meaning and again. So those are some two extremes we need to kind of avoid. Being anchored in a, an old tradition that doesn't really connect to the community around them and being so culturally sensitive that we are. And these things are sometimes the, the shortcuts that we do to, quote-unquote, make our church experience nicer for us, but not necessarily for everyone else. So though we are responsible for the church, it is nonetheless God's church, and, it's, and, to it, and it is to him we must ultimately follow as we determine how to best do church in our current setting. So what are the dangers of being stagnant in the way we gather as a church? Well, without a firm grasp of ecclesiology, the study of the church, that defines the role of the church in the believer's life, we, must eventually, we will eventually get tired of the church and lose interest. And anyone who's been in a few churches, we realize that that moment really does come. It's just not the same. That pizzazz where we get up and the excitement to come down to church just isn't there anymore. And it's stagnant. So until we connect the assembling of ourselves as, as the church to be in part and parcel of our discipleship and obedience to the gospel, we will never gain a truly biblical understanding of what the church's significance is. In other words, so, so when those experiences that we tire, oh, I like singing that song, I hope we sing that song as we go to church today, but oh, no, we don't sing it. Oh, it's all getting tired now. But what then motivates us? Well, no, this is the church community. This is important. It's not merely about the songs I sing and how wonderful I thought the service connected with my needs in this particular week, but this is part of my obedience. I can't get stagnant in that, and that's the temptation because I'm still in my flesh. I can't get tired. I shouldn't get tired. Though I am, but I owe this to God. I need to know the needs of the church community. And so sometimes, like I said, if stagnation is going to be an issue more of, is it because of what I'm looking for in my church experience? And I'm not really going there to serve. That's one of the things, isn't it, we discovered in, especially, you know, we do it, we realize that sometimes it gets to that point where when we're not on team, we tend not to come. You know, so there's something, that, that connection, that when I feel like I have a role to play in church, that I make that extra effort to come. But then when I'm sitting and I'm coming and I'm going to be just part of the congregation, then the effort tends to subside. I don't what I'm going to do. I don't want to sing those songs again. But when I think about the whole idea that somebody might be there that might need my help, might need my testimony, might need to hear about my week, I might need to listen to their week, 
then all of a sudden, it's very hard to be stagnant when you suddenly realize there might be something for me to do from week to week. So what is the mission of the church? What is our chief aim? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechisms makes it plain and simple. What is the chief aim of man, chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The church is called to be a worshipping community. Here we must understand worship in its broadest terms to mean all aspects of a believer's life that are lived out in obedience to God. In other words, my commute can be an act of worship. Lord, I am not going to rail on that guy you know, as an act of worship because I know that, Lord God, that he could walk into the church and see me. In the, uh, you, and then what will I be? Every aspect of life is an act of worship. So what does this mean when we say that the mission, you know, so one of the famous sayings of um, John Piper is that mission only exists because worship doesn't. Our mission is to bring the church, to bring the world into the obedience of worshiping God, to do that which is the very foundation of the Catholicisms, the Westminster Catholicisms, to become a worshiping community, to have a place. And why? Well, we see this right from the beginning of God's word, isn't it? Genesis 4, 25 to 26, it says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is all in relation because most of Genesis 4 is about Cain and how the world is turning crooked. And it's becoming a murderous vain society but then all of a sudden in response to this there's another child that is born and it becomes a worshiping community and God is highlighting that for us he says this is what I want I don't want the world to be like Cain and his descendants I want it to be like Seth and his descendants a worshiping community people that just want to praise the Lord and do what God wants them to do and live their life well before him so the mission of the church is to establish on the earth a worshipping community as it was intended in the beginning. Our mission is, as a means, is a means to an end and not the end in itself. There will come a time at the end of this age when we will no longer need a mission. Mission is done. There's a time where Mikey won't need to sit in Lewisham and preach the gospel because the whole world will be filled with those who already agree with him. It's a time where I won't need to sit at the front and proclaim the word of God because the word of God will work amongst us and just say, it's just Jesus now. So we mustn't confuse the mission for the gospel. It's just what we do until Christ comes and makes that perfect. This is important because if our mission is not aimed at the worship and the glorification of God, then our mission is not only to be, is not going to be faithful, a faithful one. And this is important because one of these things that kind of come up is that there is this whole idea of how do we jazz up our mission 
as a local church. And that all, I mean, it's always riled me. If our aim isn't to create a worshiping community, what is it you actually want? What, what do you want us to be? What other important thing is there that you want? And so often people are not looking for that. The worship and the glorification of God is not immediately on their mind. And that is not healthy. And so often people fall in love with the mission of the way how we can trap people and get people coming in. Whether that's through the old traditions or whether that's through some new kind of fandangle way that we suddenly re start to say the mission is the gospel. How we do it is the gospel. Because and, and, that experience that we're giving people is ultimately what we're here for. As opposed to people focusing on the local church as opposed to on the glory of God. And that's the danger. Is that we can get wrapped up The mission is more important than God. This was the danger of Israel, wasn't it? Wrapped up in the temple, wrapped up in worshipping the things that they had created as opposed to worshipping God. It's one of the reasons why throughout the prophets it says, I'm fed up of your sacrifices. Render your heart and not your garment. Again, as the song says, I want to get back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. This means that there is a danger that if our traditions and our seeker-friendly services are aimed at ourselves rather than God, then our mission will, again, as I said, be faulty. Paul alludes to this danger in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 17. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. You see that whole idea that sometimes like, God doesn't even hold it against us when we are going off mission? That Paul says that though those people's works will be burnt up, some of those ultra-traditional churches, some of those ultra-liberal, seeker-friendly churches, the Lord is still keeping them. Though their work may not survive because the mission had become the gospel. So, it is that we need to be careful our own self, that 
when we think about it. Lord, I don't want you to burn up. I, I want us to stay on mission and have the mission in its right place. I want to create an environment where people can come and worship you and enjoy you. But I don't want to do so at the expense of saying, well, as long as I make church so relevant and so man-centered that they can't really connect. They're not really connecting with you. They're just connecting with the program and how we do things. So what are the dangers of confusing the church with the gospel in my closing now? No doubt we can all envision our ideal church. Maybe some of us are still caught up actively looking for it still. I know some people still looking for the perfect church, quite literally. The church is not the gospel because it is just a derivative of the finished work of Christ. We have a place in the church because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. As an illustration that might be helpful, think of it like a restaurant. And why do we go at the restaurant? We don't go to restaurants to sit at tables. This is the act of sitting at tables and just sitting there and doing nothing. Going to the restaurant is to enjoy the food that is presented to us. And even though the ambience and everything that happens around it can be important, suddenly you realize that if the food is poor, the ambience makes little difference. But when Christ is at the center, when quote-unquote good food the purpose of why we gather, when Christ is relevant to us, then, and the ambience, and everything reflects towards that, where it's, I'm eating good food, I'm enjoying a good relationship with God, and everything around me is not conflicting with that, and is helping me to do that. You know, imagine that, good food in a bad restaurant. Tiles, and cockroaches, and all the rest of it. But the food is good. I'm enjoying a relationship with God. You suddenly realize that there's that connection, isn't it? That we want both to be good, right? We want healthy relationships with God, healthy relationships where people can appreciate who Christ is because that's the purpose. That's why we're here. But then the ambience works with it. The people around me are helping me to do that. When I walk into church in the winter, it's warm. When I walk into the church in the summer, it's cool. At the end of a long sermon like this, I can refresh myself with some teas and coffees and get a little bit of a break. All those things make a difference to our experience, and they should complement a healthy relationship with our Lord. But we have to be careful that we don't conflate or join together our church experience with the gospel. This is especially true for those who are saved in a church environment. I never got saved in the church environment, so you don't quite. But sometimes when people have gotten saved and they've made that decision within a church environment, you know, we have to guard against the belief that the local church has played a major role in our salvation. The downfall of such beliefs is that when the church experience turns sour, and I assure you, it will turn sour. You will end up questioning your whole conversion experience. Let 
Let me end on this, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Or were you baptized in the name of your local church? Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.